Okay, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. If you want to use a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 920. 920. This morning, we're going to hear from the Word of God as we examine almost the entirety of Acts chapter 12. So it would be good for you all to have your eyes on the text this morning. Because there's a lot that we're going to to uh, talk through and hopefully have the Lord meet us in. So to prepare our hearts for that, let's have a word of prayer and ask for the Spirit's help. Father, we are just so thankful just to be able to say the words, Blessed Jesus. That's only because of grace. Father, apart from that grace, people in this room, we'd have nothing to do with one another. And yet, Lord, You, you call together this, this ragtag group of rascals um, and bring us together in one, as one, in Christ. And now, Father, as Your children, we come and we want to hear from You. We want to hear from You as You speak to us by Your Spirit through Your Word to accomplish whatever purpose You have for us this morning, Lord. Father, just as Paul was told that do not fear, there are many of My people in this city, Lord. We know perhaps that there are people in this room right now who are Your people that have yet to be awakened by the power of Your Spirit, given eyes to see, given ears to hear of the goodness and glory of Christ the Savior. And Father, we pray that You would awaken them this morning as they hear the good news of Christ, as they hear the good news of how You fight for Your people as a precious Heavenly Father. So Lord, just just illumine our hearts so we could take in and drink in everything You have for us in this wonderful, action-packed chapter of Your holy, inspired Word. We pray these things and entrust these things to You in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're going to read Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. 
And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, that they, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Thus reads the words of the Lord. Be careful, be careful who you pick your fights with. This bit of wisdom came from my 7th grade PE teacher and basketball coach at Jefferson Junior High School a mere couple miles down the road. He was the first staff responder to an after-school fight. A fight in which one participant emerged completely unscathed and the other participant was heavily damaged. This was not an unexpected fight. He had eyes to see. It wasn't an unexpected fight. It was between a fight 
there was a fight between a seventh grader who looked like he had skipped several grades to be in the seventh grade and another seventh grader who looked old enough to be my uncle. Everybody in attendance, myself included, knew this, this wasn't going to go well. But the interesting thing was this. It was the smaller of the two who was the instigator. He was the one who constantly picked on the larger young man because of a stutter he had. All the while egged on by a long-standing group of friends who laughed, who encouraged, who egged him on. Finally, the larger boy got to the breaking point and was waiting for him after school. The teacher, who was there to stop the fight and clean up the carnage, did not respond like a staff member primarily. He didn't threaten suspensions. He didn't, he didn't threaten with parental contact. Though those things may have happened. I wasn't there for the follow-up. Rather, this teacher, a gruff, though at times tender man, who sported a, a military-style buzz cut, just a large man, had a really important life lesson to impart to the bleeding young man. Be careful who you pick your fights with. The folly of fighting against someone bigger, stronger, and more powerful. The folly, even going out from individuals to nations, the folly of a nation choosing to fight another nation that has more soldiers and more developed weapons. The folly of seeking out any clearly unequal battle is dwarfed by the folly of fighting against God. Because God always wins. God always wins. Sometimes, to further his display of glory in the victory, God allows his enemies to believe that they actually are winning. Or sometimes that they've actually won. It's very easy to look at passages like Acts chapter 12 and see this strictly as a Herod versus the church thing. When in reality, it is a Herod versus God thing. It is a kingdom of the world versus kingdom of God thing. Christ makes the connection between Him and His church abundantly clear when He says to Saul, lying on the ground, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? The implication is clear. Fight against the church and you are actually fighting against God. You are actually fighting against Christ, the Lord of the church. As all who are in the church by faith are in Christ. They are one with Christ. And that is a fight that you cannot win. Because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel cautions against such a thing earlier on in the book of Acts, 
when he urges temperance in dealing with the recaptured Christ-preaching apostles in Acts 5 when he says, but it is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. You could never oppose God and win. Be careful who you pick your fights with. Today's passage brings us into one such fight as we find someone fighting against God by fighting against His church. And this chapter breaks down, I use the word scenes, almost like it's, it's obviously it's one story or it's one movie that helps you frame it well, but it's three scenes. Scene number one, or if you prefer point number one, if you're, if you're beholden to outlines, is simply titled Enemy. Verses 1-5, through five, the first part of verse 5. The second scene is, I'm titling, Rescue. The second part of verse 5 through verse 19. And the third part simply is Judgment. Verses 20-23. through 23. And then there's a hidden fourth point at the end that we'll get to when we get there. As to scene 1 or point 1, it is important to recognize that the church and by extension God has enemies. Now, as a point of clarification, we have to make a very important distinction here because God's absolute holiness and His absolute perfection coupled with our violation of our created purpose to reflect Him, to reflect His glory. And the fact that we don't do that makes us enemies of God. All unforgiven sinners are enemies of God. Before Christ forgave us, we were all enemies of God. The fact that we have moved from being an enemy to being a child should make us stand in awe, should stir in our hearts a love for the Christ who rescued us. Yet some of those enemies are elevated into positions of power according to God's plan and purpose. And they use that power to war against God, to war against God's authority, and to war against God's people. Most often as a manifestation of their own blindness to who God is and who His Christ is. In verse 1, we are introduced to one such enemy, Herod the king. Where are we in the story of kingdom spread? Kingdom spread. Luke timestamps us at the beginning of the chapter with about that time, which seems to refer back to the time that the collection was taken in Antioch for the brothers in Judea. And at the end of the chapter, he records the death of Herod, which historians date at 44 AD. So all this seems to happen about 10 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Also of interest in our story is the fact that last week we learned, we continue to learn about Antioch. Today we get to dip back into the mother church, home base, Jerusalem, and then next week we return to Antioch. This passage begins with King Herod. This would be Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great ruler of different areas of Palestine. And it says Herod the Great 
laid violent hands. I've never used that phrase before. Laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod, a confessed Jew, was in Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which took place the week after the Passover. We can assume that Herod, Herod must have been confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ at some point. He had heard of His crucifixion, surely, and the word that that crucified Christ didn't stay dead must have graced His ears. And He chose not to view that as the only hope for His soul, but as a threat to His kingdom. And isn't that true of all unbelievers? What I love to do when I study Scripture is if we come to people who are enemies of, of the Gospel, or if they're resilient, they, 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 don't want, they don't want anything to do with the proclaimed Word, they're, they're stiff-necked and they're hardened, the first thing I want to do is, is say, where do I see myself in that story? And as unbelievers, unbelievers, the great hurdle apart from God's grace operating in the heart. But the human hurdle is, I don't want to give up my kingdom. I love being king. And that's really, really illustrated in the person of King Herod. And the first action of his violent hands was to have the Apostle James killed. Remember reading about the Apostle James? Remember when the Apostle James asked something of Christ that got the, him and his brother asked something that got the rest of the apostles a little bit surly towards them? Mark 10 records this request that James and his brother John make of Jesus. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. To which the Lord responds, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? To which James and John say, well, yeah. And Christ says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. For James, the time for that cup, the time for that baptism had come. The first apostle to be killed the cost of following Jesus. There's always a cost of following Jesus. That's why the road is hard. And yet Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, is not focused on James ultimately. It's the first thing that strikes you. An apostle's killed. But if you look at, there's not a lot of print given to that. Rather, the focus is on Herod. He and his actions are referenced six times in the first four verses. The Spirit makes it clear through Luke that the focus is on the enemy of the church. Territorial kings in the Roman Empire had to walk a fine line. What was the goal ultimately? Keep Pax Romana. Keep peace. For if your territory was marked by a lack of peace, your body could be marked by a lack of a head. So to keep Pax Romana, keep the peace 
in the areas over which you governed was paramount. And to keep this peace, there needed to be a subtle mix of authoritarian violence and constituency-pleasing politics. Herod sees the killing of James striking this renegade movement right at the top. One of the apostles, he sees that's that's pleasing to the Jews, so he decides to go even one better, to go after that loud-mouthed, troublemaking Peter, the the perceived leader of this bunch. But the feast was ongoing, and to act would have worked against his goal and turned the Jews against him, and perhaps even violate his own practice of Judaism. So he puts Peter in jail, and perhaps... Hearing of the miraculous escape of Peter earlier, as recorded in Acts chapter 5, it was time to flex a little kingdom of the world muscle. I'm going to make it so this guy ain't getting anywhere on my watch. Verse 4 tells us there's four squads of soldiers. So 16 men, four taking six-hour shifts around the clock. Let me do my math. 4 times 6 is 24. I got that right. It's not in my notes. That's what happens when you ad lib. Verses 6 and 7, two soldiers always next to him chained with two more guarding the door. There is no way in the world a mere human is getting out of this. The problem? Herod wasn't fighting against a mere human. Be careful who you pick your fights with. He was fighting against God. The God who loves to, the God who loves to, scene number two, the God who loves to rescue. I'm so thankful for my rescue. Here we find a wonderful principle. The more dire the situation appears, and therefore the more miraculous the rescue is, the more glory of grace that is displayed. So now I'm thinking thinking Ephesians 1, right? We're praising the glory of His grace. And the more glory of, of grace that is displayed, the more praise is given to God for that glory of grace that is displayed. That's how God operates. He loves to do miraculous things because He loves the glory and the praise that results from His people the benefactors of His miraculous works. There's two massive illustrations of this in God's redemptive plan. Number one is the exodus of the nation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And the second one is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The overtones of the exodus are plain in God's actions and Luke's recounting here. There's an enemy, there's a rescue, and there's a judgment upon the enemy. I believe, as we shift to verses 6 through 19, I believe the key to verses 6 through 19, the rescue of Peter from the most dire of circumstances, is found at the end of verse 5. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. In the face of this attack from the enemy, the church unleashed its greatest weapon, fervent prayer. 
Prayer to the God who is now their Father. Mediated by their great high priest who went to the cross for them. Jesus Christ. Perfected in its utterances by an indwelling Holy Spirit. This fervent prayer is triune in nature. And it's the greatest weapon of our warfare. That prayer is the most awesome of weapons and it is a weapon that all of us in Christ possess. The word translated earnest in the ESV. If you have an NASB, it may say fervent or fervently. It's only used one other time by Luke. And the only other time it's used by Luke is in relation to prayer. And it's captured in the 22nd chapter of his Gospel in the 44th verse when he is describing the intensity of the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which was so intense that it leads to his sweat becoming like drops of blood falling down to the ground. That was the intensity of the prayer uttered by the church in the face of this attack. This was the fervency of the prayer uttered by the church in the face of this apparently dire circumstances. They had killed James, and now they're going to do the same thing with Peter. What is going on? Help us, Lord! They're crying out, trusting that God would hear them, trusting that God would act. Really thankful for our tailgates. And this might shock you, but I'm not primarily there for the food. The men who take the time, and I know Ryan, I think you're, you're, you're given a word of encouragement tonight, but the men who have brought those words of encouragement, they just had a deep, profound effect, even in the couple of times that we've been there to, to take it in. And in particular, one moment where, where Nick um, talked about Christ moving mountains for His people. That's a verse that could die a death of a million qualifications. We could neuter God's Word and God's promises into the ground. That comes from Mark 11. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt, does not doubt, does not doubt in his heart. So we're hearing, we're hearing some James overtone in there praying in faith, not double-minded but believes that what he will say will come to pass, it will be done for him. Well, as we look at Acts chapter 12, and we're looking at this fervency of prayer, God is about to move a mountain. He is going to display why no plan or no weapon formed against him will ever succeed. He's about to display why we, 2,000 years later, why we should trust him, and he is worthy of our trust. He is the sovereign God of the universe who does whatever He wills. He acts within His creation however He chooses. And He is no cold, callous, impetuous deity. Rather, He is the God who loves His people as a Father. A God who hears and is attentive to every prayer that His children utter. He is a God who acts mightily on behalf of His people all because they are in Christ 
the beloved Son. God chooses to move this mountain by sending an angel. God acts supernaturally. At God's good pleasure, He can override the natural course, the natural order that He created. He doesn't always do that. And if He chooses not to do that, we have to trust Him enough to say, not doing that is better. Because you're good. Because you're for me. Because you're with me. Because you love me. Verse 7 tells us that the angel stood next to Peter and a light shone in the cell. Yet the two chained Peter and the two keeping watch outside do not see, nor are they aware of all of this. God can do that. And here's a great question. Here's a great question to ask as we look at the text. And then we want to learn from the answer. How does the angel find Peter? How does the angel find Peter? The sands of time. Think an hourglass here with the sands. The sands of time in his life are running out. Is Peter in a panic? Is Peter pacing? He's sleeping. The guy is sleeping. He's imitating his Lord who was sleeping below deck in the boats as the storm rose up. He's sleeping. How can you sleep? They trusted God. He had seen God's miraculous rescue that was recorded in Acts 5. He had been privy to the mighty hand of God moving and converting Jews in mass. He'd seen Him heal. He had followed Christ and seen all of the works of Christ. Because of the new birth that He experienced, He, knew, he now knew God intimately and knew that He was worthy of His trust. We could assume that He prayed fervently he, 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 he followed, though he may not have known it obviously, but he followed the words of Paul that with everything by prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and you're done. You've done what you could do. Now rest. This is in God's hands now. The only place where it ought to be. Perhaps he rested knowing that an army of believers was storming the throne of grace on his behalf. Whatever the reason, Peter slept. When trial hits, when our soul is in turmoil, we must strive to experience such rest by entrusting ourselves in the situation to God. It is the angel that awakens him, strikes him on the side, according to verse 7, and says, get up quickly. Here we see overtones of this Exodus story come in, in which the Israelites must act quickly in the rescue, symbolized by the leaving of leaven out of their breads as there wasn't time to wait for it to rise. The miraculous rescue continues. The chains just fall off his hands. The angel instructs Peter to dress and follow him. As one commentator notes, this was not Peter's escape. Rather, it was his deliverance. Peter cannot believe what is happening. Verse 9 tells us that he thought he was seeing a vision. It's when they pass through the first gate and the second gate, they come to the large iron gate leading into the city that the gate opens automete. You hear that word? Automatically. It just opens. Because God is God. By the sovereign hand of our Lord, the gate opens. The angel leaves. And Peter, verse 11 tells us, comes to himself. 
and says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God's people's prayers were answered. Peter was rescued by the hand of his God. The greatest attempt of an earthly king was no match for the power of the sovereign king of the universe. And yet, in all of his sovereignty, we get to a tension point in Scripture. A tension point that if we press too far, our theology can get out of balance. It was God in all of His sovereignty acting in response to the earnest prayers of His people. My favorite older writer is a gentleman named Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson says this. This has always struck me. He said, the angel fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. One of the greatest mysteries of the Christian life is how the prayers of God's people can be effectual, can do something in light of a God whose predestinating purposes have roots before He created the heavens and the earth. How about the folks who were fervently praying for such a delivery, a deliverance, a rescue? Many of them were gathered, verse 12 tells us, at the house of Mary. And here we meet someone Mary's son, John Mark, who verse 25 that Nick will take next week will join the missions team. He eventually will become the scribe that captures Peter's gospel. Peter's words, rather, in his letters. The gospel of Mark. Yeah, let me go back and say that again. The gospel of Mark would be a recounting of Peter. Would be a recounting of Peter. That is this John Mark so first one to meet Peter, a servant girl named Rhoda. We're always struck about who gets to see Christ first. In this case, she hears Christ. She hears, or she hears Peter rather. She hears Peter and she doesn't let him in. Rather, she goes and relays to the folks who respond in faith and joy. He's here. Prayers answered. No. They say, you're nuts. That's the original Greek. No, it's not. Can't we see some of us in that response? See, I, I, I'm loving it. Boy, before I vilify these folks, say, what are you, what are you praying for if you ain't going to believe what it happened? That's me. We pray, we pray, we pray fervently, earnestly, exhaustively, and then we doubt sometimes when the prayer is answered. We see some of all of us in that reaction. Well, bless her heart, Rhoda. She keeps insisting. Their answer, it's his angel. Reflecting a belief that one commentator of that culture says is that Jews believed in individually assigned angels who guided and protected and even often assumed the physical appearance of their assignee. Both responses, it is an angel, and you are out of your mind, reflect an inability to grasp, an inability to believe that God had moved mountains for them. That God had freed Peter in the 11th hour when his death 
following James seemed all but assured. But verse 16 tells us that they finally saw for themselves. They finally, and there had to be some sort of celebration because, you know, remember, Peter's still on the run. He's still on the run. So what's he do? He's like, shh. And he shares with them the glorious things of God's working. What's his last request before leaving? Verse 17 tells us, tell these things to James and to the brothers. This James is the half-brother of Jesus who Luke, a couple of chapters later, will make clear is the predominant leader in the church of Jerusalem. It's important they know of God's work. It's important they know He's free to continue doing the Lord's work. It's fascinating as the book of Acts progresses, once we hear from Peter at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we don't hear from Peter anymore. Then Peter, surely in an effort, don't call me surely, surely in an effort to avoid Herod's people, leaves for another place. So what's Herod do with all this? This is a great awakening for Herod. Is this it? Is this finally the tipping point? Is this where uh, that, that voice of the Spirit says, stop kicking against the goads, man! How far are you going to go? It's Jesus or bust! No. Herod has no true belief in the God of Israel, nor in his Christ. Herod has no room for the supernatural. Herod doesn't use this as an opportunity to consider just who it is that he is fighting against. Who else can do all these things? Rather, heads must roll. Somebody messed up. Verse 19 says that all who were assigned to guard Peter that night were put to death. Kingdom of the world justice. Which leads us to our third scene and point, judgment, verses 20-23. The regions, so you'll see right away, the regions of Tyre and Sidon are mentioned. Those are coastal cities in Phoenicia, quite a bit north of Jerusalem and Judea. They were self-governing cities. Self-governing cities. But Luke makes it clear that there's two truths in play. Truth number one, these self-governing cities were reliant upon the areas ruled by Herod for their food supply. And secondly, Herod was angry. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm not the smartest guy in this platform. Well, I guess I'm the only guy in this platform, so that's actually a really bad example. But I'm willing to say to you that having the person who controls your food angry with you probably ain't a good thing. Probably not a good thing. You can imagine the stress that would cause, the fear. It's going to happen to my children when we, when we run out of food. So their plan, their plan is some of the folks from Tyre and Sidon seek out someone who's got the king's ear. They're going to find an inside guy. This inside guy, verse 20 tells us, is Blastus. The, the kings, according to ESV, the kings, a word that means nothing to us. A chamberlain. 
How do we think of the word Chamberlain? Simply, perhaps, a chief of staff. A one who, a servant who oversees all of the other king's servants. So they got their inside guy and they appealed to him to kind of broker some peace. Broker some peace. A meeting day is arranged. And verse 21 tells us, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So, now you got the guy who is controlling your food supply. He's in front of you. He could have spoken gibberish. And those people are going, yeah, amen, I'm with you, bro, 100%. Just make sure I get my food. So he's given this oration. And desperate for peace and therefore a food supply, they say the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod, the enemy of God, the enemy of God, was now receiving worship. Verse 23 tells us that because he did not redirect that worship towards God, because he did not give God the glory, the Lord once again dispatched an angel. And this time that angel wasn't coming to rescue, but to execute judgment. Herod is eaten by worms. Think about some pretty terrible ways to go. Eaten by worms has got to be somewhere on the top tier of that uh, list, isn't it? Josephus, the great historian of the time, and again, not inspired, but helpful to fill in some blanks historically at times, cautiously of course, but the great historian records that Herod dies after an agonizing five days. As my seventh grade PE teacher would have told Herod, be careful who you pick your fights with. We see a fulfillment of Psalm 110 that the writer of Hebrews cites at the end of chapter 1 when contrasting Christ with the angels where the promise from the Father to the Son, the Anointed One, is to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Herod was made a footstool as all Christ's enemies have been made or will be made. Once again, as with all those who choose to fight against God, God wins. I'm tired. I want to sit down. What a story. And we're doing this all in one Sunday. What a story. Persecution, death, fervent prayer, miraculous rescue, judgment, worms. This is the kingdom of God. Even the worms. Part of His plan. Who created the worms? Who commands the worms? And while we are out of breath, or at least I am, could be my eating habits as much as the text, but while we are out of breath, God is not. All according to His plan. If we were to have a fourth point, if we were to have a fourth point, and I almost have to because I'm assigned through verse 24, so I've got to have a fourth point. Right? Verse 24 would simply be deemed, you just can't stop it. 
You just can't stop it. You can try to do whatever you want to stop the plans and purposes of God. You can try to do whatever you want to try to do to try to stop the march and the conquering and the spreading of the glory of God's anointed, but you just can't stop it. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Enemies of God war against him. Enemies of God war against his church. People are imprisoned. Followers of Christ are martyred. Yet God's plan to increase the kingdom of his son marches on. You just can't stop it. God's purposes and plans will stand. And hear this, 21st century Americans that are being taught to be afraid of everything. Better not get too close to those steps. I'll fall down. Be afraid of everything. From a human perspective, there will be seasons of great visible victories. But there will also be seasons in which it looks as though the enemy is winning. But all of that is squarely within the plans and purposes of God. The Word of God will continue to increase and multiply. You just can't stop it! Under God's sovereign care until the time, the appointed time, when the Lord of the church returns. With the little bit of time I have left, I think i got about an hour and a half left. Right, Daryl? Good, thank you. Um, what would God... I haven't been in the pulpit for like two months. i got stuff to say. All right, Give me some slack here. Right? Um, what do we learn from this? So we don't, we don't want this to stay here. We don't want this to stay here. We always, we always want to labor to take truth. We need to, we need to begin with true, a right view of God, a right view of kingdom, a right view of ourselves, a right view of the, the world outside of Christ. But then somehow we, we, we've got to get to the heart and the will level. Because that's why God has followers of His Son 2,000 years later to be reading the, the text that the church has been reading for 2,000 odd years. Let's briefly revisit each three scenes just drawing a couple things out. This won't be elongated, but I've told that lie before and confessed. From scene number one, we learn that there is a cost to following Christ. There is. For some, like James, it is the cost of your earthly life. For some, like Peter, it is imprisonment for the faith. All around the world, it's happening right now today. What that looks like in actuality is in God's hands. But following Christ costs all of us something. At the very least, it costs us ourselves. The right to be the king in our lives. We have been bought with a price and we are not our own. Sometimes following the one who purchased us out of love by his blood, we lose family, we lose friends. We lose jobs because we are now one of them. But rest assured, brothers and sisters, that cost is given back exponentially and eternally. In Matthew 19, our Lord says, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, 
will receive a hundredfold. It's hard to give it up for the sake and glory of Christ, but rest assured, you're not actually losing it. You're not losing it. You're going to gain back something greater in the coming fullness of the kingdom. What we lose now for the sake of Christ and the gospel will be given back to us beyond what we could even imagine. The second thing we want to take away from this scene is that there will always be enemies of God, enemies of the church. Psalm 2 tells us that the nations and the people will rage against God and His anointed. But what is God's response to, the, to, to such a raging? He who is in the heavens laughs. You, can, you think you can fight against God? And then, well, at the end of Psalm 2, what a great recommendation. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. You, you, you don't want to see the sun angry. Kiss the sun. While that, while, 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 that, while that ring, while that cheek, while that foot is still available in the age of grace, kiss the sun. Come to him by faith. Trust him and love him. Rest easy, brother and sisters, that regardless of what the headlines say, God is in control. But one word regarding our posture, this is concerning. So, so this is something that I just saw in my years pastorally as I looked at flocks that God had given me care of. It's about our posture. We mustn't become angry when the nations rage. Rather, we should grieve. Their raging, even when it affects us personally, is a manifestation of a manifestation of their blindness. A blindness that if they were to die in that state, will be will bring judgment that is eternal and horrific upon them. We must grieve. We must pray. And as God allows, we should preach Christ crucified. We mustn't be angry. But by the grace of God, you know the rest. Scene number two, we learn that fervent prayer avails much. Fervent prayer avails much. Fervent prayer avails much. Even in the 11th hour, even when the situation seems beyond dire, beyond hopeless, we pray big things. Big things. This God who worked miraculously in that prison cell is the same God who is with us. The same God who is for us. The same God who fights for us. Brothers and sisters, I just implore you, as because uh, I preach this to myself constantly, keep the faith supernatural. Read this story and say, this is our God. This is our God. We're just not reading a historical narrative about a God who, well, that's, that's, that's Him then. And now, come on, I have an iPhone. What can He do? I have an iPhone. No, this is the same God. Live your life and pray accordingly as though it is the same God. Praying right now that He fixes this lamp. From scene number three, we can learn how jealous God is for His glory. 
Stealing God's glory is a human problem. We've, we've quoted Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By grace, the punishment for being a glory stealer. So, so Adam and Eve were created in the garden. And I, I always use this illustration, rightly or wrongly, but it, it, oh, there it is again. We're going to... AV? Anyway. Um, it's, like, it's like Adam and Eve are given this mirror. They're given this mirror. And they're supposed to take this glory that has shined down in relationship, in close relationship with their Creator God, take that glory and just reflect it outward and spread it into the creation. Then the fall happens. Fall happens. And then that mirror, and I'm going to do a profile, it's my best angle. Alright? Then that mirror is unturned and that glory, because of our sin nature and our desire to be the God, is turned to us. We're glory stealers. And thankfully, the judgment for all of that stolen glory fell squarely on Christ at the cross. The judgment for stealing God's rightful glory fell upon Christ at the cross. Now I have to stop there. I have to stop there and say, is that true for all of us? Has it for you? I don't want to come here this morning and proclaim the glory of a crucified Christ assuming you all have repented and believed in Him, that you're in Him. Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from the stealing of God's glory and entrusted yourself to Christ? Have you trusted that all of the punishment, all of the judgment for your glory stealing, your law-breaking rebellion has fallen upon Him and it's been paid for fully it's been atoned for. It's been finished. Boy, if you come in here this morning and you don't know, and right now you're feeling God's tug, just come, come see somebody. Pastor Daryl, me, the AV guys who are going to fix the lamp, whoever it is, don't leave if you're feeling the prick of the Spirit in your heart. But for those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Christ, God remains jealous for His glory. When we live for His glory, when the entirety of our lives reflect the desire to bring Him glory, we get to live in this Psalm 1, Matthew 5, go back and study that later, Psalm 1 and Matthew 5, blessedness. This place, this place that all the world, that all the world is seeking for, but they can't have because it's only found in God. We get it. It's this blessed place of, of joy. It's this blessed place of peace, of hope, of having a purpose, having meaning to every one of your days. We rest in that blessedness when our lives are aimed squarely targeting God's glory. So aim every facet of your life towards His glory, acknowledging Him, thanking Him, recognizing that apart from Him you have nothing. There's no self-sufficiency in this creation. Just throw that in the trash. Put to use the things God has given you for the reason He's given them to you to be used for the sake of His name and His glory. And my closing phrase is simply this. For He alone is worthy of that glory. He alone is worthy of that glory. Join me in praying.
Father, as a just a mere broken vessel who has been rescued and given your spirit. Lord, I, I stand here just trembling at the thought of, of, of just talking about your word and proclaiming your son, which is just glorious. Father, I do pray, just thinking about the things that we even just talked about now, Lord, I do pray that, Father, we would be willing to take up our cross and die to ourselves daily, joyfully absorbing the cost, earthly and temporal that it is, for the sake and glory of Christ, for the riches that will come in that day, Lord. Help us, help us to live now in light of what is to come what has been secured for us by our Savior. And, and, and we don't want to become Gnostics like this is all bad. Help us just to enjoy the goodness of now, but enjoy the goodness of now in light of the One who's given it to us. Help us to live this life for Your glory in all of its fullness. Help us to enter into by faith that peace, and that joy, and that hope, and that purpose of meaning that we were created to experience in connection to You now that that connection, that relationship, that covenantal nearness has been assured by Christ. So Father, bless us. We just ask that You increase our love for You. We ask that You increase our faith in You. And we ask that You increase our desire to devote the entirety of our lives to Your glory. And we do this because of the One who came, lived, died and was raised to make all this possible. The matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.